Welcome to Intergenerational Politics with Jill Weinbanks and Victor Shi, where we host weekly political discussions that are engaging and relevant to all generations. As always, we want to thank you for listening to Intergenerational Politics. If you haven't done so already, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts to support future episodes. And we also have a website, intergenerationalpolitics.com. This is Victor Xi. I'll be an incoming freshman um, at UCLA very soon. Also got elected as the youngest Joe Biden delegate here in Illinois. And I'm Jill Weinbanks, the co-host with Victor. I'm also the author of The Watergate Girl, the experiences that I had as the only woman on the Watergate trial team. I'm also the wearer of Jill's pins. And today's pin is a special one for this episode. Um, A fan sent it to me and it looked to me like a coronavirus. And so since we're going to be talking to former secretary of HHS today about coronavirus, it seemed appropriate. I'm also an MSNBC legal analyst. And now for nearly a year, coronavirus has disrupted all of our lives. From students being forced to take classes via Zoom like Victor is doing, to so many businesses forced to close and employees forced to work from home while supervising and teaching their own children, to the courageous frontline workers in hospitals and grocery stores, we have all experienced the impact of pandemic. To help us explore everything related to COVID, the vaccine, and the challenges facing the Biden administration as it works to reopen our country and suppress the virus, we have with us an extraordinary guest, Kathleen Sebelius, President Obama's Health and Human Services Secretary from 2009 to 2014, and the Governor of Kansas from 2003 to 2009. She is currently the CEO of Sebelius Resources, LLC, and serves on the boards of numerous health-related organizations. Thank you so much for being here, Kathleen. We are really looking forward to this discussion with you. Nice to be with both of you. Of course. So, you know, you have a really unique perspective on managing pandemics, given your experience as both a governor and HHS secretary during the Ebola and SARS outbreak. So I think for my generation, it might be useful to kind of start with the basic level of what happens in the White House and across government agencies when a disease as deadly and contagious as COVID-19 breaks out. So um, I guess let's first begin with the role of HHS and what their responsibility is for handling a pandemic like COVID. during this time? Well, Victor, let me just start by saying, uh, as a governor, I had never dealt with a pandemic because there really hadn't been an active pandemic uh, in my time uh, as a legislator and as a governor. Um, I was sworn into HHS, though, with a pandemic in my welcome wagon. Uh, in April of 2009, when I became the final cabinet member to be confirmed in the Obama administration, H1N1, the so-called swine flu, was then prevalent, and North America, uh, Mexico, Canada, and the United States were kind of the epicenter of the outbreak. We did not have a vaccine, uh, and a different population, we knew it was the strain of the flu, but a different population was dying, younger people and children, and that was terrifying to a lot of people, not only in this country, but around the world. HHS has a unique situation. Uh, My nomination and and confirmation was kind of rushed through because uh, it was not a good time to delay in having an HHS secretary. I was the last one because Tom Daschle had been 
nominated by the president, but then withdrew his nomination uh, during the confirmation process. So I was kind of the, the second choice and um, ended up getting to DC when the outbreak was underway. So HHS has a global component, a coordination. We lead the delegation of health leaders at the World Health Organization. We coordinate with uh, leaders around the country and the world in terms of tracking, tracing, hopefully stamping out and dealing with any kind of outbreak. So there was that component. HHS uh, also has 11 operating agencies under the umbrella of one of the largest domestic cabinet offices. And in those 11 agencies are the Food and Drug Administration responsible for any kind of medicines, devices, uh, responses, uh, vaccines, they have to be the authorizing agency. The NIH, which is the gold standard for um, health research uh, and within the NIH is the infectious disease uh, agency often at the lead of developing any vaccine and um, treatment recoveries, and also the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which is the backbone of public health in this country and around the world. CDC has employees in 50 countries in the world, mm -hmm. and they are always at the forefront of tracking and tracing and helping other countries deal with outbreaks. So HHS has an absolutely critical both domestic and international role in any kind of uh, not only identification, tracking, tracing, recovery, development of uh, vaccines and medications dealing with an outbreak. Yeah. Well, that's a huge apparatus and really fascinating to hear you kind of just go through everything that's under HHS's umbrella. Um, can you kind of talk about um, how does HHS kind of coordinate with other government agencies? So like, obviously, it's a huge apparatus, but how do kind of you make sure that there is constant communication and coordination between HHS and the CDC um, and the FDA and some of how that process works out, um, especially during this time when kind of so much is moving and so much is moving so fast? Well, I need to make it clear that I can talk to you about the way it operated in the Obama administration. Yeah. I have no idea um, uh, other than snippets about the way it has operated in the Trump administration. And I, I can tell you from everything I've heard, it is alarmingly broken in terms of communication and coordination. Um, but in, in the days that I was there, the secretary, again, sits over these multiple agencies. Uh, but we had teams from the FDA, the NIH, and the CDC, particularly in this um, outbreak, who dealt with each other not on um, only on a daily basis, probably on an hourly basis, uh, with information that was flowing regularly. There is an entity within um, the Secretary's Office uh, of Emergency Preparedness called BARDA, and BARDA is responsible for coordinating between those agencies for identifying immediately promising scientific breakthroughs that may come out of NIH or a scientific agency helping to Sherpa those uh, out that information through the FDA and getting emergency authorization use or approval as quickly as possible and tracking with CDC what is happening, where the disease is, not only in the nation, but in the world. 
how we should be responding, who are there any safety concerns once you begin administering some sort of either medication or vaccination? Uh, what are the information uh, red flags that go up? How you make sure that you're getting the vaccine or the remedies to the right places at the right time. So there's an agency just to do that, but to say HHS is intimately involved in that step along the way. And at least during the Obama administration, I would say that the rule, number one, number two, number three rule was we listen to the scientists. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's difficult to do when there's a lot of fear and a lot of uncertainty and not enough medical response is there quickly enough. We didn't have enough vaccine as quickly as we wanted it. Distributing that vaccine became a very um, hotly contested uh, debate. Uh, People always wanted more than they were getting, more than their allocation. But uh, at every step along the way, President Obama was insistent that the scientists made the call, that we listened to the scientists, that immediately if we deviated from that, we would be down a rabbit hole that we would never recover from, that it had to be transparent. And we had to tell people, uh, another rule of his was we tell people what we know, and then we tell them what we don't know. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we repeat it over and over and over again, that both of those, you don't spin information, you don't spin. But I would say in addition to HHS, President Obama put the all of government approach in work. So my co-partner in responding to H1N1 and again involved in the uh, Ebola and Zika outbreaks was Janet Napolitano, who was head of Homeland Security. And she was really dealing with the rest of government agencies, coordinating with employers, uh, talking to school personnel, uh, trying to make sure that everybody was on the same page, everybody had the same information we were dealing. In our case, uh, the question about whether schools should be closed or not was made in a way that said schools could be closed based on outbreaks in that area, but we should not have a universal school closure because the we could track where the disease was heading with CDC's help. We knew when it was going to hit an area and when they were overcome and that children were likely to be safer and more secure in school than they were kind of roaming around or heading to the malls. Parents could work if their children were in schools. But again, we did not have a national simultaneous outbreak like the one we're seeing now. Yeah, wow. That that's. I, I only wish that we had a president who took in the the facts, even when it doesn't agree with him. Um, but unfortunately, we don't have that. Um, you know, you mentioned some important points. Um, you know, including you know the president and how he should respond to um a pandemic or or an outbreak. You also mentioned how you know the coordination is between um state and local government as well, and getting schools also on the same page. You know, I just want to move on to some of your observations about kind of the Trump approach. To me, it seems like his approach in handling COVID has been uh, different than what you described. It seems to be like a really hands-off approach with the federal government not leading, um, but just kind of letting states and cities navigate the pandemic on their own and often like in competition with each other. We've heard him say, you know, um, he would give more funding to Republican cities and less to Democrat cities. I'm just wondering, you know, from like a, a... kind of observing this as a former HHS secretary, what are your thoughts on his approach? And I mean, is this a viable long-term strategy? Well, it's a great question. And I think um, as a governor, I did deal with 
a number of natural disasters. And there's a real protocol around disaster response where the local government starts and uses the resources they have at their disposal and then calls on the state. And um, if they can't solve the problem on their own, the state then opens up resources, personnel, uh, you know, administrative rules, and then the state calls on the federal government. That's typically in a natural disaster, a tornado or a flood or a major forest fire, how disaster response would work. This disaster, I would say, um, and pandemics and things that are going to hit people simultaneously works just the opposite, should work the opposite way, where the federal government with its unique logistic capability, financial capabilities, uh, systems in place, uh, purchasing power globally would lead the response. That's what we did uh, and the Obama administration in H1N1 is the response was led by the federal government by the agencies described. The vaccine was developed and purchased by the federal government and distributed in a very transparent way. Decisions were made at the federal level and then uh, local and state leaders were uh, brought into that collaboration and cooperation. We shared information, but it was clear that only the federal government had resources at their disposal. We have never seen in the history of the United States anything like the pandemic that's hitting and the re resounding economic downfall. But we've also never seen a federal leader, the president of the United States, walk away from taking a federal role. From the beginning, we have had a president who not only lied to the American public about the information, how serious this would be, what was uh, going to happen, refused to use the tools of the federal government to produce the protective equipment desperately needed by states. And as you say, deferred to state and local leaders say, basically go find it on your own. Uh, denied the fact that the federal stockpile was really uh, a federal responsibility to be distributed. In fact, in times, governors and mayors found themselves competing against the federal government for uh, desperately needed equipment. Um, failed to ever set up an adequate testing protocol. We are still fighting about testing and we are now 11 months into this outbreak. The one and only response that I think deserves some credit is the response to rapidly develop and prepay for effective vaccines. Uh, the collaboration and cooperation between the brilliance of the scientific community and the muscle of the federal government to say, we're going to get rid of barriers and areas, and we're going to make sure pharmaceutical developers that you know there's money there in the pipeline. If your vaccine works, we're going to buy it. That has worked very well, getting a vaccine in record time uh, to be developed. Nothing else about this process from start to where we are today has worked at all because the federal government basically said, we're not gonna do it. Push decision-making and responsibilities to state and local leaders who did not have the finances, did not have the bandwidth, did not have the authority to make decisions that could save lives in their home states and communities. So I've never seen anything like this. And I think 
unfortunately, America is paying the price. We have done worse with this vaccine, I mean, with this um, pandemic response than any developed country on the face of the earth. It's so interesting to hear you say that. And there is um, a real lack of a federal policy or federal strategy. Is there anything that you would recommend that Biden's secretary of HHS, um, Becerra, do differently uh, or that he could start on right away to improve that? Well, I think the good news for the American people is that on the 20th of January, Joe Biden will be sworn in as president. He has gone through the various outbreaks that we've just talked about. He was there with H1N1. He was there with Zika and Ebola. His chief of staff led the Ebola response. So the Biden team has been working on a massive government plan uh, since uh, the fall, and I would say has nominated people who are incredibly well equipped to deal with all of the ravages, the economic ravages, the dropping of the ball at the federal level. So they have a federal plan that will include logistics and distribution and financing. They have a federal plan to bring state and local leaders into uh, sort of a one United States approach, a uh, plan that will be transparent and open. Uh, the problem is we, they will inherit uh, an incredibly dangerous time. You know, Jill, I said the other day to somebody, we are in the most dangerous relay race of my lifetime. And in a relay race, if anybody has ever watched or participated, what happens is as the baton is passed, both the uh, runner who is finishing the laps and the runner who is starting the laps are running as fast as they can. And the baton is passed in an active mode or that team doesn't do very well, drops it or loses it or starts poorly. But what we have is a Trump team who basically has stopped running. Um, not that they ever had a plan to begin with, but the so-called coronavirus task force led by the vice president of the United States has not met since the middle of November. Donald Trump, whatever role he was playing in uh, leading this country, has stopped in early November. The Biden team is making plans and preparation and naming people, but we have a dead halt at any kind of effort coming out of the national government. And we will not have a new team sworn in. I mean, the, the president will be sworn in on the 20th of January, but Congress has within its power to delay confirmations, to delay filling key posts, to delay um, the next team from getting up to speed. And, and that's really terrifying. Uh, we have hospitals that are filled to the breaking point. Uh, Los Angeles, you know, a major economic center and population center in this country has just issued directives to ambulance providers to make a determination about whether or not a patient might live or die before they allow the patient to get into the ambulance to go to a hospital because the hospitals are filled to um, overcapacity and they don't want people just dying in hospital corridors. They'd rather allow them to die at home. They're out of oxygen. People are running out of PPE. We have a, a total mess in terms of vaccine distribution that, again, has never had a national plan or any kind of transparency. So 
we are in a really dangerous period. So the Biden team is ready to go, but they can't go until they're, uh, the switch is flipped and the oath is taken. And, and then hopefully their uh, top employees are confirmed as quickly as possible. Well, now you've alarmed me greatly. Um, you should be alarmed. That I was alarmed before <laughs> this. Um, it, it is. I mean, the thought that uh, cabinet officers won't be confirmed in a prompt way um, maybe reminds me that uh, we have to depend on the outcome in Georgia. But um, one thing I'm worried about now, in addition to all the things that you have mentioned, is the messaging. And I'm particularly yeah. concerned because to the extent that Donald Trump has played a role, it has been in messaging and in contradicting the message of the scientists. His tweets and his behavior have led people to do things that are dangerous. And what you've mentioned in LA just uh, emphasizes how much we must be wearing masks, social distancing, staying at home. Um, and, and it's not just COVID patients who will be rejected, but patients who are having heart attacks may not have a room at the hospital. But do you think that President Trump's behavior and his tweets have contributed to the terrible record that the U.S. has in terms of COVID cases and COVID deaths? Well, I don't think there's any question that um, if you look at the countries that have done very well, there has been a unified national response, including, as you say, communications. You know, if you go back to... Um, epidemiology, which is sort of the identification of disease and the dealing with disease, one of the key factors is communication. In a public health outbreak, you need a clear, consistent communication strategy that's repeated over and over again. And you need to be able to immediately counter false information, disinformation, misinformation. I would say we have not only a super spreader president who has by his actions, holding events without masks, uh, having a virus rampant throughout the White House through his personal family, through his uh, personal aides, but also given misinformation from the get-go to the American public, intentionally given misinformation, uh, some reason or other, and I don't pretend to be uh, analyzing Donald Trump's inner brain, um, God help us all, but uh, he decided that it would be more harmful to him because everything is always about him, more harmful to him to acknowledge what this virus was, how dangerous it was, how potentially contagious it was to give correct public information than to lie about it and cover it up. And that has been a consistent problem and pattern. And for the first time in the United States of America, we have a public health crisis, which has been made into a partisan battle. Um, I can tell you when it happened, when in mid-April, the Centers for Disease Control had put forward a series of steps for reopening the economy. At that point, we were on a voluntary stay-at-home directive that most governors in the country had picked up. So schools were shut, businesses were shut. The CDC had a four-step plan for what needed to be done to reopen, starting with a downward trajectory of disease for a two-week period of time, testing that would be in place so everybody could do contact tracing and testing so as cases 
were presented, you could find them quickly and again, deal with these isolated cases, uh, you know, watching the disease closely. That guidance was put out on the 16th of April. On the 17th of April, the president of the United States chose to call out governors in three democratic states, no Republican states, three democratic states, insisting that they be liberated. Michigan, liberate Michigan, liberate Minnesota, liberate Virginia. That set up what we have seen from mid-April until today, which is January of 2021, a partisan battle where supporters of the president's uh, political supporters felt that they had to follow what the president was saying because they didn't want to be attacked or called out or identified by the president as being not faithful. Democrats, on the other hand, who have been trying to follow science, found themselves um, to be assaulted. I mean, Governor Whitmer in Michigan had armed citizens come to her Capitol office insisting that she open up the state. I mean, we've never seen anything like this, but it's all about the communication of the president directing his followers to insist that things happen, which were absolutely counter to the science and what we know now installing political hacks in scientific agencies to rewrite the scientific information before it was shared with the American public. Again, totally unprecedented uh, and very, very dangerous. And I think the saddest part for me is that um, this all could have been avoided. Um, I know I know you know this very well, but the Obama administration specifically set up a pandemic playbook um, for the Trump administration if something like this were to happen. Um, can you just tell our audience a little bit about if you're able to kind of what was in that pandemic playbook and whether following it would have led to better outcomes um, depending on what was in it and how the president reacted? Well, I think what you're going to see in the Biden administration is what is in that playbook, where you set up a national strategy where the federal government uses the resources that are uniquely available. States work on balanced budgets. They can't run over a budget. So states can't make money. They can't say, you know, we're going to uh, spend money we don't have. That's illegal in most states. Uh, the federal government can do that all the time, and they do. It's called the deficit. You know, they can run up big deficits, and we're in a crisis. So they will be doing that. The um, using the Defense Production Act to look very carefully at what supplies are needed in the United States and make sure that they are available. Because again, globally, everybody is looking for the same stuff, right? Everybody needs masks. Everybody needs gloves, they need equipment. What we can't do is manufacture personnel. So the goal is to keep the hospital system from being overrun, as Jill said, not just for COVID patients, but if you need surgery, if you're getting cancer treatment, if you need, if you're in a car wreck, if something happens, you need a hospital bed and you need staff to be able to treat you. We are running perilously short of hospital staff, trained staff, and beds. And that's a that cannot be solved by the Defense Production Act. Uh, there is a coordination strategy, a communication strategy. We have seen absolutely a bright light shined on the um, disparities uh, in health recovery in black and brown communities uh, because the underlying conditions, the access to excellent healthcare and hospitals are more limited in underserved areas. So 
they have taken the brunt of uh, this disease in terms of death and serious illness, and also are in jobs often that don't provide the luxury of working out of a house. So efforts like mask wearing and social distancing and protecting uh, people who are frontline workers are part of the national playbook. Um, vaccine distribution. Right now, the only effort of the Trump administration was to get vaccine from where it's being manufactured into a state. Up After that, it's up to the state. We have states in all, first of all, all the states are reeling from this economic downfall. There has been no supply of funds to do the vaccine distribution. There should have been a ramped up core of vaccinators ready to roll. And that couldn't happen because the states couldn't hire them. A bill was just signed a week ago that will provide money, but that should have been started months and months ago. The logistics of even in a fairly small state like Kansas, we're a rural state. We've got lots of isolated hospitals and nursing homes and areas that are hard to reach. Think about Alaska or tribal communities where the last mile of a vaccine is not driving down the road to a Walgreens or a CVS. There are no roads. There are no Walgreens or CVSs. There are no vaccinators. So uh, there is a massive need for a plan to have to mobilize vaccination areas to get the vaccine, particularly these very hard to store, very cold storage vaccines into the most remote areas that we have in the country. That can only be done by the federal government and all of that is missing. You've made so many excellent points. Um, and I wanna follow up a little bit more on the vaccine, partly because I think people are so worried about how fast it was developed and so they're not trusting it. Um, and I think you kind of identified in your prior remarks today, um, what allowed that to happen and that that may be the one good thing that the Trump administration did was to put the resources there and encourage uh, the, the manufacturer. Um, so that's a good thing. But then you've pointed out that the worst thing is we now have vaccine and the vaccine is sitting but isn't being put into people's arms. So it doesn't help to have the vaccine unless it gets injected. And what we need to do now, it seems to me, is find a way to get those people in place. And it's unforgivable that the Trump administration didn't follow the Obama plan and be prepared for this. Is there anything you can say about where could these personnel come from now so that there would be enough people to inject the doses that already exist? Well, it's, it's a sort of multi-part question. Let me, let me start with the safety of the vaccine. Um, I think it, it needs to be made very clear to the entire population that the Trump administration did not develop this vaccine and were not able, in spite of their best attempts, to push it to a conclusion so that it was an election issue. Um, this was a scientifically developed vaccine with a, a different process that had been used before with a faster identifier of the one code that all the scientists agreed could be the key to having an effective vaccine. And the good news was they were right. 
we didn't know until the trials were unblinded if they were right or not. But not only were they right, but they were incredibly right. So you have a vaccine that is 95% effective, which is almost unheard of. Uh, flu vaccines are in the 50% effective, which is better than nothing. But 95% effective vaccine is a real scientific breakthrough. This was not Donald Trump's vaccine. It was a scientific breakthrough based on scientists all over the world working at breakneck speed on how to quickly develop this. And the trials, I think, have been very transparent and very able to be seen. What we need is a consistent, again, messaging to divorce this from Donald Trump and make sure people know this is a scientific triumph and now we need to take advantage of it. So that's step one. We have safe and effective vaccines. We have at least two of them approved in the United States. Hopefully more will be approved. But then the entire logistics about distribution, there isn't a standing national vaccination effort. Uh, flu shots are given over a series of months and it's very voluntary. People get them from their own healthcare providers or from grocery stores or big pharma. This is very different. This is an emergency situation to get to the most vulnerable populations as quickly as possible, then to frontline workers, then to older people with pre-existing conditions. There's a sort of cascading look. But the logistics of doing that has to be run by the federal government, and it has to be fair. It has to be equitable. It has to be transparent. None of that has happened. Uh, people have no idea where this is going. Uh, state by state has come up with sort of different rules. Some of them work pretty well. Some of them don't work at all. Uh, what appears to be happening, uh, recently there was a publication about West Virginia, which, which refused to participate in the federal program at all and said, just give it to us. We're not going to use, you know, private pharma companies to do it. Um, they seem to be more effective than most getting the vaccine where it's needed by just ignoring what limited help there is available from the federal government. I think there's um, there are ways to what we did again in H1N1 is we vaccinated about 100 million people. We had major open sites. You've seen some of the testing sites that have opened up where people are brought in and hired for a limited period of time. You can recruit both retired uh, medical personnel and others to actually be ready to do shots in arms, but it, it's a logistical effort that takes getting the right number of vaccines to the right places at the right time, getting the people employed. I think the Biden team is ready to roll on that. They have a plan to get health workers hired in states around the country, both to do the vaccinations, but in the meantime, also to do contact tracing. That has never been effectively done in this country. So as outbreaks occur, you could really lock down a portion of a community or a business and a population and leave the others to continue to operate. Um, but I, I, I think all I can say is a plan is uh, been developed is underway, but it's going to take uh, some time for the folks to get in place and to have it happen. And we are in the most dangerous period uh, we've ever seen in this virus where we have between 1,000 and 2,000 deaths a day. Um, LA just said again that they may be nearing 1,000 deaths a day just in Los Angeles County. Um, 
I mean, that's a horrifying data point. Uh, we have nearly, I think it's 23 million cases identified. Um, and, you know, nowhere near the kind of control that we need. So social distancing, mask wearing, hand washing, uh, keeping the protocol in place until we can get uh, the majority of the population vaccinated is, is more important than ever. Going just one more question on getting it into people's arms. Yeah, and then I got it. Um, as former general counsel of the army, I'm, I'm always reluctant to have the military involved, but um, I wonder in this case, whether we have a public health crisis and that medics um, around the world could be called upon to start doing injections, including army, uh, Navy, Air Force medics. Do you think that would be a possibility to bolster the available resources? Well, I think I think everything is on the on the table at this point. I think we're going to need a lot of those army medics. We need to make sure that the armed forces are vaccinated uh, when their turn comes. Uh, that's going to be in and of itself a major logistical issue. Uh, the worst of all worlds for this country's security is to have um, the disease ravage. Uh, Armed forces, we've seen what happens at that outbreak on a Navy ship. You've seen, so, I mean, they're gonna be uh, needed in their own lanes. I think the National Guard can be mobilized in virtually every state. We use them in the Obama era. That's a governor's call. But I think if, if a governor knew that they were going to get thousands of doses on a certain day, they can help mobilize the resources to deal with that. The problem has been in these opening weeks is they were told that they would get a number of doses. That number changed three different times. They were told that the vaccine would be the Pfizer vaccine, which needed this super cold storage, and now are told that maybe some of it will be Moderna and some of it will be Pfizer. So the logistics from the federal level have been so confused and confusing that I, I think it has been really a crapshoot for governors to try and figure out what's coming, where it's coming, which kind of vaccine it is, and then they have to figure out the logistics throughout their state. So hopefully we'll get some clarity and some transparency sooner rather than later. Thank you. you your answers have been fantastic and have given me hope uh, and particularly focusing on January 20th, when a new president will be able to actually carry out the ideas that you are talking about now. We're so grateful to you for being with us today. Uh, I have a million more questions, and so <laughs> hopefully we'll have you back again to answer more of them. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. You bet. And good luck, Victor, in your school days. Very exciting <laughs> yeah. times. And thank you, Jill, for allowing me to have this conversation with both of you. Of course. Thank you. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Intergenerational Politics. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts to support future episodes. Thanks so much. See you in our next episode.